Over the course of this retreat, uh, Greg and I have mentioned a few times that insight practice or vipassana is about seeing clearly. And as the practice develops, our insights expand from seeing clearly into our own personal and individual patterns into seeing more of the universal characteristics that are common to all experience. And we've mentioned these three universal characteristics briefly a few times, but tonight I'd like to go into them in just a little bit more detail. So in Pali, they're known as anicca, dukkha, and anatta, or impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, as they're commonly translated. And the first of these three, anicca or impermanence, points to the fact that all experience is constantly changing, nothing lasts. And on one level, this is pretty obvious. We sit down to pay attention to the breath, for example, and right there we know rising and falling, the breath coming in and going out. And in the same way, when we open to physical sensations, we start to see that even aspects of experience such as pain, that at first contact might seem to be enduring, are actually constantly changing on a moment-to-moment level. Likewise with sounds, sounds arise and pass away, and so too with our mental experiences. Our thoughts and emotions and moods and mind states are constantly changing. And this is good news because if there wasn't this capacity to change, there would be no possibility of awakening, of freedom. So for most people, this first universal characteristic, uh, impermanence is the most obvious and the most accessible of the three. And then perhaps the next most obvious is the second characteristic, which is dukkha. And for some people, this is a little bit harder to grasp because the word dukkha is commonly translated as suffering. So if we hear that all experience is suffering, not only does that not sound at all appealing, we know that that's just not true in our own experience. All of us have experienced moments of ease and happiness and delight and even joy, perhaps even quite intensely at times during this very retreat. But in this context of the three characteristics, the word dukkha is more accurately translated as unsatisfactory or unreliable, not capable of providing lasting fulfillment. And although we might resist this fact, if we really pay attention to our experience, we might recognize that this sense of unsatisfactoriness lurks in even the most pleasant experiences, Because there's always that shadow of knowing that at some point it's going to end, it's going to change. And then we're going to have to find the next hit of pleasant experiences to keep us going. So we might at first grudgingly acknowledge the truth of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness. And over time, accepting it more fully actually leads to greater ease and a more sustainable happiness because we're not so caught up in chasing after this, that, and the other thing to try and give us lasting happiness. And we're no longer expecting that the next hit of pleasantness is actually going to do it for us. 
so we don't get as disappointed when it inevitably doesn't deliver what it had seemed to promise. So instead of chasing after external sense pleasures, we turn instead towards a more reliable source of ease and happiness, which is our inner capacity to experience contentment to some degree, even when our external circumstances are not so pleasant. So as the practice progresses, we start to see the truth of dukkha as unsatisfactoriness more and more clearly. And we can appreciate how that clear seeing strengthens our capacity to be happy. The third universal characteristic of anatta, usually translated as not-self, is for most people much harder to grasp. Because again, the phrase not-self sounds pretty unappealing. It sounds perhaps confusing or incomprehensible or meaningless. And we can try, we can sort of tie ourselves up in knots trying to make sense of it intellectually. But right there, I think, is part of the problem because the understanding of not self arises more fully out of a, a more intuitive wisdom. It's an embodied experience rather than a concept to be wrestled with intellectually. And a second problem uh, that gives rise to the confusion is the term self itself. The self that not self is pointing to in the way the Buddha used the word self is not necessarily the way we think of self in Western psychological terms. In Western psychology, we it's desirable to have a healthy sense of self. So when we hear the term not self, it might sound like the Buddha is asking us to somehow negate that and that the goal of practice is to somehow become a, a nobody, a non-entity, some kind of colorless, characterless, humorless being with no individuality or no sense of expressiveness. But this is a serious uh, misunderstanding of what's being pointed to here. This is not at all what the Buddha was asking us to do. And in fact, although it might sound somewhat paradoxical or contradictory, deeply understanding this character of not-self actually improves our healthy sense of self. So in order to get a better grasp of what the Buddha was referring to here, I think we need to understand what he meant by the term self. According to Buddhist scholars, the word self was used in ways that uh, were commonly understood in the Indian philosophical and spiritual traditions of his time as pointing to an external, uh, sorry, an eternal, not an external, eternal soul or an unchanging essence. So the term not-self is pointing to the truth that because everything is constantly changing, it's impossible for there to be any permanent entity who's experiencing all of this. Some of you may know of the U.S.-based Dharma teacher Guy Armstrong, who's one of the senior teachers at both IMS and Spirit Rock. And he's recently written a book on emptiness. And he says that for something to be classified as a self in the way the Buddha understood it, that self has to have continuity, independence, 
control and singleness. But if we imagine, if we examine each of these four conditions, we see that these are all flawed assumptions that don't hold up to investigation. So the first idea of what makes a self a self is that it has continuity, that there's some unchanging entity that stays the same through all of our different experiences. And we might have the sense that the I, the me that wakes up in the morning is the same I or me that goes to bed at night. But are you the same I that you were at six years old or 16 years old or 26 years old? And even on this retreat, there might have been some moments of experiencing very directly that yesterday I felt to be like this. And then an hour later, I felt to be completely different. And now this morning, I feel almost like a different person again. So if we really pay attention to experience, we see that there's not a lot of continuity in this experience that we think of as self. The second faulty assumption in relation to the self is that it's independent, that there's something, some entity that exists apart from or separate to our experience. And this is sometimes referred to as the homunculus, which is that vaguely intuitive sense of a little being somehow just behind the eyes who's observing everything that happens to us. And the English language enhances this distortion of perception by structuring a sense of I at the center of all of our experience and me to whom everything is happening. And sometimes the way we practice insight meditation can inadvertently strengthen the sense of a separate observer, a kind of witnesser who is seeing or watching experience unfolding and naming it to ourselves. So in meditation, one way of helping to reduce the strength of this conventional eye-centered language is to leave out personal pronouns in the way that we describe our experience. So for example, we've talked about uh, describing our physical sensations as um, non-conceptually as possible with bare awareness. So rather than saying, my foot hurts, my foot hurts, we name instead sensations of pressure and tingling, hardness, aching, contraction, heaviness, and so on. And we can extend this impersonal language into all other aspects of our experience too. So instead of telling ourselves, I'm hearing, or I'm irritated, or I'm lonely, or I'm happy, it becomes hearing being known, irritation being known, loneliness being known, happiness being known, and so on. So you might like at times to play with this uh, dropping all first-person pronouns, things like I and me and my and mine, and just notice if that has any effect on your experience. Sometimes people notice a sense of more ease and spaciousness when not everything is constantly referred back to an I at the center of it all. Because as Guy Armstrong says, when we think that what we really are is separate from what we experience, 
we create, create an auxiliary entity that doesn't exist. We have to keep creating this I over and over to sustain the fiction of its reality. This requires constant effort that prevents the heart and mind from ever fully relaxing. So the third faulty assumption in relation to self is that it's in control. And most human beings have a pretty deeply held unconscious belief that we are and we should be in control of our lives, in control of our world. But again, all of us here on retreat have probably experienced sometimes painful moments of recognizing that that's not the case. If our self was in control, we'd never have to wrestle with painful physical experiences. We'd never have to deal with challenging thoughts and emotions and moods and mind states. And we'd never have to wrestle with any of the hindrances, for example. But as far as uh, what you've been reporting in individual meetings, that isn't what any of you have been experiencing Like it or not, our self is not in control. And so we do have to experience all kinds of wanted and unwanted experiences. And the fourth faulty assumption of what a self is that it's one single thing. It's unitary and it's not made up of parts. Because if something is made up of different parts, then it can be disassembled and it's not stable or permanent. And again, most human beings have this unconscious notion that, as Guy says, we are one person, not two or three or more. Those who believe otherwise are quickly medicated. Moreover, we believe that this one person is unique in the world and perhaps in the whole universe. So we have this sense of being a single separate entity. And a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to an autopsy lab in the U.S. to look at cadavers, bodies that had been dissected for medical training purposes. And for me, the experience of being able to look at a corpse and to see most of its component parts was totally fascinating. I was really Uh, struck by the complexity of just the physical aspect of the body. So looking at organs such as the pancreas and the gallbladder and the salivary glands and the brain, to name just a few, made me realize how incredible it is that all these different lumps of meat and bone and flesh and sinew and so on are able to function together to support a human life. It was uh, the physical meat and bone aspect of the body. Just that was complex enough. But then we also have the chemical system of the hormones that are constantly being released to help us digest and sleep and wake up and to regulate our moods. And then interacting with all that is the kind of the electrical system of the body, the firing of neurons that are also sending millions of messages to different parts of our bodies to keep the whole system responding appropriately. It really is a miracle that all of these different parts and systems function together so well most of the time. 
But when I looked at those dissected corpses, it was very clear to me that we're not one single entity that could be called a stable self. So perhaps on a more philosophical level, the Buddha's teachings on not-self are pointing to our mistaken assumption that we have something called a self that's continuous, it's independent, it's in control, and it's single or unitary, not made up of parts. And perhaps on that level we might have some intellectual understanding that these notions of the self are faulty. But on a felt sense level, there is still a feeling that, yes, well, this is me and this is who I am. This is a natural part of the human experience. It's on one level, as Greg was saying, advanced common sense, these teachings. It's common sense that I'm me and I'm not you. And we each have different life stories, different conditioning, different personalities and so on. But the subtlety of the Buddha's teaching on not-self is that it's inviting us to look at where we cling to that sense of me because it's the clinging that creates the problems. To the extent that we take this sense of me to be solid, fixed, permanent and real, to that extent it causes suffering. So the real gift of what the Buddha taught is this understanding of how craving causes suffering. This is the second noble truth. The cause of dukkha is craving. And in relation to the sense of self, this craving is uh, very deeply rooted. It's the very deeply rooted tendency to cling to our identity, to identify with our experience, and to take it to be me, mine, who I am. So most of us, most of the time, we tend to operate as if we were the star at the center of our own universe or the star at the center of our own movie, a movie called All About Me. And we write the script of that movie and we're the lead actor and we're the producer and we're the creative director of our own life stories. And we get so fascinated and enchanted by the dramas that we're playing out on our own movie screens that we don't even recognize that we ourselves are fabricating that entire experience. So in some ways I see the teachings of the Satipatthana Sutta as kind of an invitation from the Buddha to turn our attention away from the movie screen and to look back instead at the projector, to look at the mechanism that's creating this whole illusion. So in the instructions the other day, I mentioned that the word vipassana can be translated as seeing separately or seeing distinctly. And so sometimes I think of vipassana as this technique of divide and conquer. This one, because when we look at the various aspects of our experience separately, we're able to manage them more easily. We can see how this process is happening, of how the body influences the mind and vice versa. We see how easily feeling tone, feeling tone can give rise to a whole proliferation of reactivity and how when we're not mindful, we identify with all of these experiences and take them to be me, who I am. And simply, instead of simply knowing them as experiences arising and passing away, impermanent, 
unsatisfactory and not-self. And perhaps that still doesn't sound particularly appealing, so I'd like to explore what happens when we don't see these three characteristics clearly, particularly when we don't have any insight into the truth of not-self. So although earlier I pointed to how language can uh, reinforce a sense of self, at least in English, we can also get a sense of how often the sense of self is connected with suffering. So a couple of years ago, I was looking for a synonym for the word self-conscious, and I looked it up in a, a big dictionary, and I was surprised to see just how many words can be pre prefixed by the word self. Besides self-conscious, there were many, many similar words. And the second thing I noticed about this list of words that began with self was that most of them were pretty unpleasant. So I'd like to read just a few of them now, and as you hear them, you might notice if there are any particular responses in your own being as you hear them. Self-absorbed. Self-aggrandizing. Self-approving. Self-centered. Self-complacent. Self-congratulatory, self-conscious, self-delusion, self-important, self-indulgent, self-opinionated, self-pitying, self-referencing, self-righteous, self-satisfied, self-serving. And there's plenty more, but that's a, just a sample. And I don't know about for you, but when I hear that list, I notice a slight tensing in my body, a kind of a shrinking or contraction, and an overall feeling of um, stiffening and shrinking. And those responses come from just hearing a list of words from a fairly abstract set of concepts. But I think many of us have had similar experiences uh, during the retreat, perhaps when time, at times when the sense of self felt very strong, very activated in some way in response to unpleasant situations or perhaps pleasant situations. Perhaps even a surge of feeling, yes, now I'm getting it. My meditation is going well, I'm on track. Nibbana, here I come. If we have enough mindfulness, we can notice the effects of the strong sense of self on the body and the heart and the mind. And we might feel it as a tightening or a narrowing, a, a sense of being limited somehow. And this is quite different from the experience we sometimes have when the sense of self is less strong. When we're in those phases of being able to just be present with the ever-changing flow of experience. And at these times, there's often a sense of greater ease, of lightness, acceptance, spaciousness, and perhaps a feeling of being open to new possibilities. Sometimes, too, in those phases, we find the Brahma-Vihara qualities 
of kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity starting to emerge quite spontaneously when the sense of self is not so much getting in the way. So there's a quote that I appreciate in relation to this from the Tibetan master Shantideva. He says, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. All the joy the world contains has come from wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. So as the practice deepens, we might notice this shift from a more self-centered orientation to more other-centered, or perhaps more accurately to non-centered, because it's not that we're focusing on the other at the expense of ourselves. That would be just another form of delusion. Instead, the distinctions between self and other start to become less relevant, less solid, and there's no need to refer to a center at all. And just to name one caution in relation to all of this, it's not about making the sense of self wrong or bad. Sometimes I hear people in Buddhist circles talking about, in quotes, selfing, as if that was somehow blameworthy and something that we're supposed to not do. But in a perverse way, this is like the self trying to get rid of the self by creating a sense of self that shouldn't have a sense of self, and we just kind of tie ourselves in knots. So rather than trying to get rid of anything, it's more about knowing that the sense of self, too, is just another empty arising, and it only has as much substance as we give to it. I know, although at first this understanding might at first seem counterintuitive, it is something that we can train in. We can train ourselves to know and to see the truth of not-self on deeper and deeper levels. And we're all already engaged in this process. We've been starting with the practice of bare awareness that we began right back on the first day of the retreat where we were practicing reporting our physical sensations out loud to each other without any kind of judgment or analysis or story. So this invitation to be with our experience exactly as it is, without adding anything to it, is a key aspect of mindfulness as it's presented throughout the Satipatthana Sutta. And as we get more used to being with you could say, the raw data of experience without adding a habitual reactivity to it, it becomes easier to notice those times when we do start to identify with our experience, when we do start to cling to it, to take it personally as me and mine and to have it define who we are in some way. So again, just to reiterate, it's not the sense of self that's the problem, it's the clinging to it that's the issue. And last night, Greg mentioned a core teaching by the Buddha that sometimes uh, presented as summarizing the whole of the teachings. don't know if any of you remember it, but it was 
Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. And in my own practice, when I first heard that teaching and started to explore it, I noticed just how much resistance there was to that statement. And I'd hear myself coming up with all kinds of arguments with it. What do you mean, nothing? That's a bit extreme. What about X? Surely X is okay. And X would represent anything that I was currently clinging to at that time. But I'd go back to the statement and, yep, it definitely says nothing. Nothing is to be clung to. So it doesn't really leave any room for argument. So as I was saying the other night, this might be one of those aspects of the practice that we need to practice getting used to. So as I said, this Tibetan translation of meditation as being getting used to it. In this case, we're getting used to the ease and the spaciousness and the freedom that come when we don't cling. For most of us, though, this process starts by seeing where we do cling, because usually that's more obvious. And in relation to this, the Buddha gives us yet another list, a very helpful list that points to some of the common aspects of our experience that we do tend to cling to. This list is known as the five aggregates of clinging, the five aggregates subject to clinging. And for those of you who are um, keeping track of all of this information, this list appears in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas. So this is a somewhat technical teaching, but I hope to uh, help make it simple and hopefully practical. Just to say the term aggregate here is the usual translation of the Pali word kanda, which literally means a pile, a bundle, a heap, or a mass. And according to Tanasaru Bhikkhu, the uh, Pali scholar and monk, the Buddha extended the original meaning of kanda to have a more psychological aspect by referring to the kandas as aggregates of clinging. So in other words, these aggregates are aspects of our experience that we tend to identify with and take personally. So these five candors are material form, feeling tone, cognition or perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. And some of those are quite technical terms that might at first sound quite abstract, not so obvious. So I'll try to give some actual examples of what they're referring to. The first one, material form, includes physical phenomena of all sorts, both within and without the body. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, we're instructed to notice the arising and passing away of this aggregate, to see that material form wears down or deforms. So form is subject to deform, to disintegration. And one aspect of material form that most have experienced a lot of clinging to is the body. On one level, this is a very primal survival instinct that we want to protect our physical bodies. That's 
completely natural. So when we're reminded of the body's impermanence and vulnerability, it can be pretty shocking at times. Just as a very small example of this, when I was about 14 or 15, I used to run along the beach near where I lived in New Zealand. And at one stage, there'd been a high tide that had taken a lot of sand away. So the beach was different than I was used to. And I was running along and there was a rock that had become exposed in the sand. I didn't see it and I whacked into it with my foot. And it was pretty painful and it was bleeding a lot. So I sort of limped down to the sea to wash my foot and I watched my entire toenail just kind of floating off out into the sea. And I can still remember that sort of visceral sense of, that's my body, like, how can that... Um, Just the shock of that. And that's a very basic example that I think we've all had similar experiences of suddenly realizing, wow, my body... It doesn't. It's not necessarily under my control, and it's um, it's subject to deforming, to disintegrating. So part of the weirdness of how we cling to our bodies is that on one hand we want and expect them to be whole and constant and stable, and on the other we sometimes reduce ourselves to a collection of parts of bits, and then identify with those bits. So it's common to hear people say things like, I hate my flabby thighs, or I hate my big nose, or I hate my puny biceps. And the implication is that that's me. I am my flabby thighs and my big nose and my puny biceps. And the implication is that we're supposed to be able to control this body. So when it inevitably lets us down by being ugly or sick or injured or old, let alone dying, something is seriously wrong. So it's pretty obvious that clinging to the body as being me, as mine, of who I am, is a source of immense suffering If we, when we need to learn how to see the truth of not-self here, to bring wisdom to it so that we don't get so identified with this physical body. The second of the five aggregates that are subject to clinging is feeling tone or Vedana. And we have spent quite a bit of time exploring that earlier in the retreat, knowing that Vedana feeling tone refers to just that first pulse of recognition of any sense contact as either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral before it then usually complexifies into a reaction of liking or disliking or not knowing. So clinging in relation to feeling tone shows up as wanting pleasant feelings to continue. And clinging can also refer to resisting, so not wanting unpleasant feelings, trying to get rid of them. Usually feeling tone uh, forms into some kind of liking or not liking very quickly and we take on these preferences as being me, who I am. So to come back to a, a simple example I gave the other day, I talked about my friend who liked her coffee with uh, French vanilla flavored non-dairy creamer, whereas I like my coffee without any added flavoring. And that liking and preference easily becomes me, who I am. 
someone who likes things to be real and not fake. So the third of the five aggregates subject to clinging is perception or cognition. And again, this is a technical term. It refers to the capacity of the mind to recognize, to label and to identify objects and experiences. And it's a natural function of the mind to do this, to recognize things and to be able to name them. This is what allows us to function in the world. Because if every time we went up to the dining room for breakfast and we had to work out what a bowl is and what to do with it and what's a spoon and what's a fork and whether that grayish-whitish substance is porridge or wallpaper glue, we'd be in a lot of trouble. It would take us a lot of effort to get through the day. So on one level, perception or cognition is just something the mind does. But again, it only becomes problematic when we cling to this function of the mind. So you might have noticed that in the sequence of the aggregates, They start with quite simple aspects of experience, such as the body and feeling tone. But here, with the third aggregate, we're getting a bit further away from immediate experience and into a more conceptual relationship with reality. We've moved into the world of names and labels and concepts and constructs. And one problem with this is that concepts, that names are static. There are things that we overlay onto an experience. And then we can easily relate to that experience as if it was always the same. So even with the breath, for example, when we use the label rising and falling, on one level that helps us to stay connected with the experience. But the words rising and falling are concepts. And sometimes they can even get in the way of seeing the flow of change that's happening with each in-breath and each out-breath. So we can cling to our perceptions and believe them to be true. And a few years ago I had an example of this when I was on my first three-month retreat at IMS. And like here, we're invited to... uh, it's in noble silence, so we don't interact with each other, and we, to some extent, keep our eyes down. And on the first couple of days of the retreat, I noticed that there were a couple of women who looked quite similar, so I assumed that they were sisters. And one of them was sitting in front of me to the left, and one was sitting behind me on a chair against the wall. And on the f- opening night, the one sitting in front of me asked a question in the hall that I thought was quite passive-aggressive and had quite an edge to it. And I remember thinking, oh, she's someone to kind of take a bit of care with. And then the next day I was standing in the lunch line and her sister was in front of me, the one who sat behind me to her right. And she was standing there and she just had this really relaxed smile on her face. And I remembered thinking, you know, it's interesting that these two sisters are so different, but... This one seems really friendly, and I hope I get a chance to talk to her at the end of the retreat. So I had this perception of these two sisters. And then on about the fourth day, I realized that they were actually the same person. And sometimes she'd been sitting in front of me, and other times she was moving to a chair. And I'd created this entire construct that I believed to be true when it was one person. So 
that's a relatively benign example. And I'm sure we all have many experiences of taking our perceptions to be true. So the fourth of the five aggregates subject to clinging is sankara or volitional formations, sometimes also translated as fabrications. And in that example I just gave, I moved from direct perception to actually creating a whole fabrication around who the, who these people were. But this uh, volitional formations or sankara is, is pretty complex. And Tanisara Bhikkhu says, of the five khandas, fabrication is the most complex. Passages in the canon define it as intention, but it includes a wide variety of activities, such as attention, evaluation, and all the active processes of the mind. So what this is referring to is the way that we intentionally create, construct, all kinds of stories and beliefs and constructs and views about our experience, as in the example I just gave. And then often, actually, the constructing of a sense of self is one of these volitional formations. So it's this tendency to make narratives about my life that I then inhabit as me, who I am. And usually these constructs and views are, aren't examined, they're just assumed to be true. We don't even see their fabricated nature. So a couple of weekends ago, I taught a weekend, a weekend workshop on anatta, not self, with a colleague, Gowan, and I know a couple of you here were at that weekend. And Gowan invited us to do an exercise where we sat with a partner and we told our life history in terms of just three short significant stories. So we were invited just to think of three stories that we felt captured the essence of our lives and then share these with our partner. And then he rang a bell and he said, now tell the story of your life with three different stories. Have to be completely new. So people did that. And then he rang the bell and we did it again. So this over and over we kept telling the history of our life through these three new stories. And I don't know how it was for those of you who are actually there, but what I could hear in this process was people starting to realize that the life stories they were choosing weren't necessarily set in stone and that there were actually many different options that they could use to tell the narrative of their life. And that there is an element of choice in what we decide is um, defining who we are and what's true about our lives. So it's possible to find different stories and different truths that might be equally as valid. So seeing this tendency to actually create and concoct and construct our reality is a very significant aspect of releasing clinging to sankharas. And then the last of the five aggregates subject to clinging is consciousness itself. And again, consciousness is a natural function of the mind. This term refers just to the capacity to know what's happening at the six sense doors, to know sights and sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, and mental experience. 
And consciousness as a clinging aggregate refers to the tendency to identify with the mind itself. So as the practice develops, we might see pretty clearly, well, I I can see how I'm identifying with my body. I can't let that go. Perhaps I can let go of my likes and dislikes and preferences. I might see the ways I tell myself stories. But often consciousness is like the last holdout of identification. We know I'm not my body or my views and opinions, for example, but there's still a residual sense of um, I am my mind. I cling to my capacity to think and to know all of these changing experiences. So again, a fairly simple example from my own life. Quite a few years ago when I was first here as a manager at BMIMC and we were just sitting after lunch uh, with a group of volunteers chatting and people started sharing humorous stories about animals for some reason. And I happened to remember a funny incident about that had happened when I was house-sitting a few years earlier and I'd been looking after someone's pets. So I shared that story with the group. And as I started to tell it, it felt just a little bit off. But I told it anyway and people laughed. And then later on, when I reflected on that story, I realized it hadn't actually happened to me at all. It had happened to the person whose house I was sitting And yet I told it as if it was my story. And at the time I was really shocked because I'd never had such a direct experience of my mind's unreliability. And I remember going to the resident teacher and saying, well, if I can't rely on my mind, what can I rely on? And I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was probably something like, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. So particularly as we age, many of us are going to have to come to terms with the unreliability of our own minds. And we need to let go of identification and clinging to the mind if we want to avoid that extra suffering. So that's a relatively um, brief overview of these five aggregates of clinging and I could probably give a whole talk on each one of them but I hope at least it might highlight some of the areas of experience where we do tend to habitually get caught in thinking of them as me as defining who I am and again I just want to emphasize that learning to recognize this clinging needs to be done with kindness This is not about finding a whole new set of ways to judge ourselves or about trying to force ourselves to stop clinging as if that were even possible to do it by force. So Tanasaru Bhikkhu makes the point that our relationship to clinging needs to be changed gradually. He says, The Buddhist approach to ending this clinging is not simply to drop it. As with any addiction, the mind has to be gradually weaned away. Before we can reach the point where, we, where we're totally freed from the fabrication of the aggregates, we have to change our intention towards them so as to change their function. Instead of using the aggregates for the purpose of constructing a self, 
we use this, the aggregates for the purpose of creating a path to the end of suffering. Instead of carrying piles of bricks on our shoulders, we take them off and lay them along the ground as pavement. So that's a, an analogy, perhaps another way of saying if it's in the way, it is the way. So rather than being bad news, seeing clinging in all of its various manifestations is actually the path to freedom. Because unless we see the clinging, we can't do anything about it. And over time, as we get more skilled at recognizing the different ways that we identify with experience, it becomes easier to release that identification. Then as anatta or not-self becomes more our default way of being in the world, there's literally more room in the heart and mind for the skillful qualities such as the Brahma-viharas to develop more fully. Because when we're not um, obsessively referring everything back to a sense of I and me and my and mine, we start to experience a much greater potential of the mind. This is how a Tibetan meditation master, Shabkar, describes the nature of the awakened mind. He says, The mind's nature is vivid, vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. And this phrase, ceaselessly responsive, suggests the compassionate nature of the liberated mind. So we might see here how these two wings to awakening of wisdom and compassion come together in perfect balance. So to come back to the overall theme of the retreat, which we titled, Awakening Our Natural Wisdom, I'd like to close with a well-known quote from the Thai forest master, Ajahn Chah because it emphasizes how this whole process is a natural unfolding. Rather than trying to force things to happen, the key is really to set up the right conditions and then keep letting go of any attachment to results. In fact, to, any, to let go of any attachment whatsoever. So Ajahn Chah says, You will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. So thank you for your attention. Let's sit quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.